Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is part two of my two-part interview with Jeffrey Sweet, who wrote a terrific book called Something Wonderful Right Away. If you missed part one after you listen to this, go back and check that out. Uh, Topic, comedy, and it turns out that it wasn't invented in 2007. You know, you can go back and you go back here to the 50s and the rich vein of comedy that sprung up from improvisation. Well, we're going to talk more and more about that. Part two with Jeffrey Sweet. And again, his book is Something Wonderful Right Away, which he has updated. It's a brand new version that is coming out uh, right now. And you can get it uh, at a bookstore if you can find a bookstore and, of course, also on Amazon. So here you go. Part two with Jeffrey Sweet right now on Hollywood and Levine. But when I say Nichols and May sort of changed comedy in the 60s, would you agree Oh, yeah. Uh, for one thing, they were talking about stuff that uh, nobody, I mean, it's it's hard for us, you know, jaded out there, free, liberated spirits to realize, but people really didn't talk overtly about sex in in in, uh, in comedy routines. Uh, um, uh, this is something that Jules Pfeiffer observed, that when he saw Nichols and May on TV doing uh, the teenager scene where he's, uh, you know, he's trying to, uh, to, to uh, trying to get her to sleep with him. Uh, he was shocked. He had never seen anything like that before. And he said, well, these are my people. And then he, you know, they all became friends and collaborators. But he said, you know, today you wouldn't realize that this was be subject matter that uh, that back in the 50s, nobody would deal with directly. You know, that wonderful line, she says, she says, you know, let's say I, 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 I do, I do this, um, you know, would you, you know, would you still like me? He says, I'd like you like crazy. <laughs> she says, are you sure you wouldn't just be grateful? He says, no, 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 really. You know, like, like. <laughs> He's saying anything, yeah. Yeah, like crazy. And Why did their relationship break up? Here's the interesting thing is that when I was interviewing uh, uh, Mike, uh, back before some of the recordings that were eventually dug up, like he told me that the um, – the teenager scene was never recorded and he was wrong because they dug up a video of it and we all know, uh, have access to it now. Uh, he gave me the stage manager's prompt script, which was a transcript of the show. 
And I thought, oh, great, there are going to be scenes in here that I'm going to laugh my ass off that, you know, I've never I've never heard before. It wasn't funny on the page. It was all behavior. There are very few jokes in Nicholson May. It's all behavior and intonation. It's all uh, out of character. Yeah. yeah. Why did they break up? They broke up. Well, they they were doing their stage show together uh, on Broadway and was running for a year. They were selling out. They were doing great. And she was going crazy because she hated repeating scenes. It just bored the crap out of her. She didn't want to. She was making a lot of money and she was doing well, but it just was boring to her to get on stage every night for a year and do the same damn scenes over and over. And so she pulled the plug on the show because she just couldn't take it anymore. And then she wrote a play. And cast him in the play, and the play wasn't working. And um, uh, he he told her she'd written the play wrong, and she told him that he was fucking up the, her script. <laughs> and, and and they stopped talking for a while. Uh, you know, she tried to get him fired, and he tried to get somebody else to come in and fix the show. And they betrayed each other. He said, and uh, he said that kind of ruined things. And then for a few years, they they didn't have much contact, and then they just. They just came back together. Life's too short. Yeah, and they and they found new ways to work together. So she wrote screenplays for him, and um, you know they would they would like at Carter's inaugural. They did a performance for Carter's inaugural. Uh, I happened to see them when they acted together in a stage production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf at Long Wharf. Um, they were um, they they couldn't keep away from each other and they fed each other and they and they and they loved each other in a, in a, in the way that um the people who collaborate and bring the best out of each other uh, love each other i'm i'm sure that you feel that way with 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 your partner that there's it's it's a kind of marriage and that you speak a shorthand and there's a kind of affection uh, that you have with a, a a real tight writing partner very very much so very much so you were able to get um uh, Mike Nichols, yeah, to do your interview. Yeah. You were not able to get Elaine May. Yes. Talk about that. Well, <laughs> Elaine's very private, and she she knows that she's sort of eccentric, I think, and she doesn't want people talking about her or writing about her. She doesn't uh-huh. want anything that any any image of her out there that she doesn't con- control. You know, when she does these speeches and awards nights or something, she's controlling that, and she's brilliant. But she didn't. She didn't want, um, and she uh, actively uh, called people up and said, uh, "You know, don't cooperate with this guy." And and Mike, uh, who enjoyed talking to me, uh, once uh, once I'd interviewed him, he uh, he called up everybody and said, "Pay no attention to Elaine. This guy's okay. Talk to him." So, mm-hmm. so it's. Uh, I'll tell you a story that's not in the book. Uh-huh. Um, there was a memorial for one of the uh, people in the book, a wonderful woman named Bobby Gordon, a woman who uh, was in uh, the Compass Players. And I uh, arranged uh, a memorial at New Dramatist, which is a theater in, in New York. And uh, Mike and Elaine came and Stiller and Mira came. And um, um, there was a point where uh, somewhere along the line, uh, almost everybody who got up and talked about Bobby nodded towards me because I had created something called the New York Writers Block, which was a group of writers, actors, and directors who got together weekly for 11 years, and we we helped each other build stuff. Stiller and Mirror were members of that group, too. Anyway, at the evening of this wonderful ceremony, in which everybody, you know, told these wonderful stories about this marvelous woman, Barbara Gordon, Elaine comes up to me. Uh, Because everybody's nodded to me, 
and said, this group of yours sounds fabulous. She says, can I join it? And I said, well, we lasted for 11 years and then we disbanded because, you know, people moved into different places and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, their careers. She says, well, if you ever get it, it's something like this started again. She said, I'd really like to be part of a group like that. What's your name? And I said, Elaine, it's 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 Jeff Sweet. And she, said, <laughs> she said, oh, I, I tried to sabotage your book, didn't I? And I said, yes, Elaine. She went, she went. And went all down the street, you know, and she used that word. She said, I tried to sabotage your book, didn't I? And I just, yeah, yes, Elaine, you did. You did try to sabotage my book. I remember but, Chip Zion telling me the story that he was in, uh, I think it was The Country Girl, the the play on Broadway that yeah. Mike Nichols directed. Yeah. And they had the opening night party at Tavern on the Green. Yeah. And Chip goes to a table with his food and sits down and feels there's like something under the table. And he peers under the table and Mike and Elaine are sitting under the table. (laughs) It's just talking. They they don't want to be bothered by anybody. So they camped out just under a table. (laughs) I, I, I absolutely believe it. You know, she's, uh, you know, I've had private conversations with her, you know, uh, I mean, she hasn't quite frisked me to find out if there's, I had a recorder on me or I was wired or something, but I've had, uh-huh. you know, very pleasant private conversations with her. But um, uh, I, I know that um, she did, she participated in a triple bill of one acts off Broadway that was directed by a British director and the British director wrote this account of, um, of doing that for the New Yorker. And she went nuts about it. She felt betrayed by him because he depicted uh, some of her private behavior. Nothing outrageous. It's just, she felt that that was violated, that that was, uh, that was sacrosanct. What happened in this, uh, you know, like the confessional, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't tell that stuff, what goes on mm-hmm. in the personal room. So as long as she can control her image, fine, but she didn't want to, she didn't want to talk to me for the record. And, uh, that's a that's a big lack. I'm I uh, I tried to talk to Melinda Dillon. She wouldn't talk to me for the record. I thought she was a genius and one of the great performers out of Second City, but although um, but she wouldn't talk for the record. A couple of other people. There was a marvelous uh, musician, jazz pianist named Fred Kaz. Do you, do you know about Fred Kaz? I know the name. Well, Fred Kaz is a pianist. Get this: in two separate accidents in his in in his garage. He he. Two separate times, he he sawed off uh, fingers. A pianist. <laughs> okay. You know, in, in, in his left hand, which you know changed how he played bass notes uh-huh. and bass lines. And he was still a brilliant jazz pianist, but he had, you know, he had three fingers on his uh, on his left hand because of accidents. You know, with with uh, with a saw. <laughs> Anyway, I, I interviewed him, and talking to him, it all made sense. And when I did a transcript, it was like trying to transcribe bebop. None of it made sense. <laughs> I, I, I just couldn't put it on the page and have anybody know what any of it meant. You know, <laughs> you know, with him looking sincerely at you, and, and you know, you, you, I, oh yeah, I got it. I grok you if you remember grok. Yeah, try having a conversation with Judd Hirsch. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. You have no idea. He just bounces from topic to topic in the middle of things. 
I, I, I worked with him a couple of times, you know. Yeah. He, he did a reading of the of the value of names and was wonderful. And uh, I, I produced an audio version of um, Hot Hell Baltimore, which is what it was his breakthrough. He was, uh, you know. Could you understand him when you had a conversation? Were you able to actually have a conversation with him? Yes, but we were we were problem solving specific moments. I, I I just loved his enthusiasm, but yeah, I, the, the the one he's a great guy. Yeah. The one who who zoomed all over the room when I talked to him was uh, 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 at one point for reasons I've never been able to figure out. William Hurt called me up like at eleven o'clock at night and talked for an hour, and it was like I was getting signals from Saturn or something. You know, <laughs> he just made two movies and he was unhappy with movies. And, you know, uh, and, and he wanted to talk about, you know, the art of the theater. And somebody had touted me as being a fellow idealist. I said maybe five words during the whole conversation. But he talked to me for an hour about art and passion in theater and about the sellouts in film and this and that and the other. I still have no fucking idea why he called me or how he got my number. <laughs> you mentioned that there were some uh, disagreements between people. Robert Klein and David Steinberg didn't get along, did they? No, no, they, they have they have since finally, finally, finally made up. You know, uh, Steinberg has got a podcast series, and he and he invited Klein on, and they basically said we didn't like each other back then, did we? <laughs> no, what a waste. <laughs> and Klein says, "Yeah, well, to be honest, you were kind of a prick to me." And 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 Steinberg says, "Yeah, I was kind of a prick to you." <laughs> you know, and they 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 sit and joke, but the 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 story goes that at the 50th reunion, they showed up and looked at each other and said, we've both gotten where we wanted to go. This is a waste. We we admire each other's work. Let's be friends. And they just decided to be friends. But Steinberg had a tendency to use other people on stage as props. He knew where he wanted to go, and other people were tools to get where he wanted to go. And that really isn't the Second City ethic, but he held on at Second City because he was so damn funny. Uh, it was him and uh, and Klein and the wonderful uh, late lamented uh, Fred Willard. Oh, Fred. Fred now, if you don't get along with Fred Willard, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. The nicest guy in the world. Wonderful, wonderful human being. Uh, and uh, Fred could do a scene with anybody. And uh, also, uh, Fred had such a good nature that if Steinberg turned him into a prop in the scene, he would be the best damn prop that he could be. Mm -hmm. he, just, he just would meet you wherever, whereas Klein knew what was going on. He knew that what Steinberg was doing to him. If you entered a scene, Steinberg put you in a chair, and then he would he would swarm around you and steal all the focus. <laughs> and and uh, Steinberg, I, I talked to him. I said to him uh, in in one of the interviews, I said, "Klein, you know, gives you kind of a hard time." He says, "Well, yeah, those were my asshole years." You know, Steinberg said this about myself about himself. You know, these were these these were my asshole years. So, Who are some of the names? that we should know because of their contribution, but we don't. You know, you throw names like Del Close and yeah. Paul Sills. Who are some people and what did they contribute? Why should we know them? Well, <clears throat> one guy is Andrew Duncan. You may know Andrew Duncan if you know the film Slapshot, because the first scene in Slapshot is Andrew being hilarious as sort of a, a third-rate newscaster with a bad toupee talking to um, a hockey player who's demonstrating all the things you must never do on the ice and demonstrating them on Andrew and bruising the shit out of him mm -hmm. as Andrew's trying to create. And that that was developed out of an improv. 
But Andrew uh, was one of the few early players who wasn't Jewish. And that was important because uh, they used non-Jewish people in Second City as the straight people, as the people who represented the establishment uh, world, uh, the the conventional culture, the Eisenhower perspective, shall we say. And then, um, you know, you had uh, Alan Arkin and Barbara Harris and Severin Darden and all these wonderful people uh, who were Jewish. Um, and they would come in and uh, bounce off of and uh, be in subtle uh, antagonism with the dominant culture. So Arkin told me, you know, at one point, everybody went on vacation. And every time somebody was going on vacation, they would say, oh, the show's going to fall apart because Barbara's going or Severin's going or so and so and so. He said, the show was always fine. He says, the show fell apart when Andrew Duncan left because he established the reality that we needed for the rest of the show. And without him there, uh, there was nothing to bounce off. And he was really the glue of of the company. And we discovered he was the most valuable player of the company uh, because he made the rest of the show possible. Yet uh, uh, nobody knew him. The uh, The New York Times didn't even uh, run an obit for him, which is like, you know, not right, mm. running an obit for Ringo or something, you know. It it drove me nuts. I I, I sometimes hector the Times obit um, department to the point where I have sort of a relationship with them. Like if I write to them and say, you've missed somebody, they actually sometimes pay attention and, and run a piece. But I couldn't get them to budge on Andrew Duncan. And uh, Andrew was a key figure in the Compass and a key figure at Second City. Uh, he established most of the interviewing conventions because he was always the interviewer and he knew how to set people up brilliantly. You know, he, 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 he performed the function that Carl Reiner performed for Mel Brooks. Mm. Um, he, he, he was a great interviewer and he was a, he was a great uh, straight man who couldn't believe what these crazy Jews were doing. Now, Second City, you know, it's no longer a Jewish theater. It's very diverse. But in the, its first 10 years or so, it was predominantly part of that wave of uh, of Jews who uh, were part of the satire boom that reacted against McCarthyism in the 50s. You know, Philip Roth and Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce and uh, Tom Lehrer and Stan Freeberg, all these people who I think, uh, I don't think it's any accident that uh, satire boomed in the 50s, and I think it was very much a reaction against uh, 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 McCarthyism and the anti-Semitism of the McCarthy era. I think this is their way of, of getting back at them. So anyway, yes, Andrew Duncan would certainly be one of those people. Um, Severin Darden is known within the improv community as a god. Nobody outside the improv community has the slightest idea of who he was. I can tell you that firsthand because we used him he guested one week on cheers uh -huh. and i was blown away like oh my god severin darden i got uh -huh. to meet severin darden and talk to severin darden and again nobody else you no, know he, he was just some schmuck that uh you know he hired you know as a guest star this week severin and peter cook were the two most original comic minds that i have met you could never guess where the joke was coming from with them. Usually when you're talking to somebody, you know the logic of their humor and you kind of get the path that there is. Mm -hmm. Severn, Severn, you could never, uh, you could never guess where the joke was coming from. Mike Nichols used to carry in his wallet a line that Severn improvised when he was playing. Severn would sometimes come out and be, uh, he would say, okay, I'm an expert. What, ex what am I expert in? 
and somebody would shout up something and then he would be interviewed as that expert. And um, there's one point when he was an, he was an art expert and uh, he was talking about how, uh, how uh, there was a certain point when perspective was introduced in, in, in painting. He says, you know, the old Egyptian paintings are all two dimensional. The eyes are like that, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, you know, they're, they're two dimensional. He said, he said, and then, he he said, and then we found perspective in 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 art, and the interviewer said, "Why is that?" And he says, "Well, that's when we entered three dimensions." <laughs> he says, "Before that, we lived a flat life." He says, "We we you know, the universe is constantly expanding. We expanded to three dimensions. And that's the perspective. You can't anticipate a joke like that. That's too good a joke." <laughs> And Nichols kept that in his pocket as oh, an oh, no, example that, of what? Well, no, the, the the line he kept in his pocket was when he was playing a marine biologist, and he said, uh, uh, Severn said, of motion, of motion, the oyster has but a dim racial memory. <laughs> what? <laughs> and, and Nichols, you're right. You're right. That's That's not the standard line somebody would come up with off the top of his head. And, and Nichols said, whenever I got depressed, he said, I'd look at this line and and say, I knew a man who was capable of coming up with this line spontaneously. And isn't the world a glorious place sometimes after all? It, mm. it it's, it's the thing that got him out of depression, he said, was to, to realize that he knew a man who was able to come up with a line like that out of nowhere, you know. But you know, Peter Cook we used to do this sometimes too. Do you remember? Do you remember the old um, routine where he's playing classical music on his uh, his phonograph and Dudley Moore comes in <clears throat> and Moore says, "What is that?" And Cook says, "That that that's that's classical music. That's music. What has aspirations? Oh, is it really? Yes, yes. This is a piece by." French impressionistic composer Debussy, 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 Debussy. He's painting a picture with music, painting a picture with music. This particular piece is called La Mer. La Mer, yes, he's painting a picture of music. Why, if you close your eyes, you can almost see Debussy's mother wheeling in the tea trolley. (laughs) (laughs) You can't anticipate a joke like that. I know, I know. I love that. I absolutely love that. The humor seems to have changed, as you mentioned, to reflect the times. And I go to improv shows now, and I find there's like a lot of energy among the Gen Zs and millennials who are doing it. It's primarily pop culture. Yeah, that's the audience. That's what the audience knows. Yeah. Um, um, Keegan, uh, Michael Key, in the uh, in the new interview in the new edition uh, of the book, uh, said that he's a, a you know a big history maven, and when they were doing Key and Peele, he kept wanting to doing scenes uh, that had some had some history content. He says, you know, uh, if um, if Hugh Laurie could do a thing about the Treaty of Ghent, you know, why couldn't we do a scene about you know? And everybody would look at him and say, Keegan, nobody understands the reference. Nobody will get it. You can do a great scene about Massasoit, and nobody's going to know who Massasoit is, you know. Uh, and I, so, yeah, uh, and it's true. He's, you know, our culture does not have the same awareness of history that the that the Brits do. 
you know, the Brits are brought up with all this history around them and all this classical theater, which celebrates their history. We don't, we don't have those references. So we, we reference something else. Um, and it's, and it's a shame. There is, however, still some great character-based improv out there. Uh, TJ and Dave are bloody brilliant. Two guys who, without taking a suggestion from the audience or, or, or consulting with each other at all, the lights come up. They've arbitrarily placed the chair somewhere on the stage. So one of them says something almost arbitrarily, and by the end of an hour, they've created maybe a dozen characters, uh, several plot lines, and it's uh, uh, themes are established. The acting is brilliant. Um, and uh, it's it's improvisation on about as high a, a level as you can get. And they never advertise. They don't have to. They simply announce that they're doing a show and they're instantly sold out. They also have um, great understudies. TJ and Dave's understudies are Tracy Letts and Michael Shannon. Wow. I once went to, <laughs> and, I once, and I've never heard of these two guys. I, I, once, I mean, what, what does that say? That these guys are the most brilliant improvisers on the planet at the moment, and they're doing it in relative obscurity. Well, but uh, they just did a weekend here in New York. They sold out all four shows instantly. Uh, they're going to do a, a weekend in Chicago. That'll be sold out. They did a film called Trust Us, This Is All Made Up, which you can rent from um, from Amazon Prime, which is of one of their performances at the Barrow Street Theater. They can't do a regular run because, as you might imagine, doing an hour-long new play every night takes it out of you. And they can do about four of these in a row uh, without... Um, uh, being exhausted and then it's so they could never do a conventional run but they are they got extraordinary reviews out of the new york times out of a lot of other places colbert says of them one of these guys is the best improviser in the world and the other guys even better <laughs> so it's um but they're but it's not it's not joke it's slow improv it's and it's real characterization and it's real uh it's real acting these guys are just brilliant, bloody actors, and they spontaneously come up with uh, amazing uh, material. But the audience, it's fascinating because one person will say one thing, the other guy will say something that is consistent with the first thing, but adds something new. And they'll keep going into the point when all of a sudden you almost hear a click and they know what the scene is. They know what they're playing, who they are and what the stakes are. And their audiences are sometimes so sophisticated that the audience applauds that click, that the mm. audience goes, oh, they know what the scene is, and they will applaud the click, the lock, as I call it. I've never told them that I, that I call it the lock. Uh, next week, I'm seeing uh, Dave, and uh, uh, and uh, we'll talk about it. Uh, about because I'm a you and you and I have had conversations about this before, but I'm a great believer that improvisational theory and playwriting theory are closely allied. That a lot of the uh, the things that make a good improv scene can be turned into things that will make a good uh, a good play or or film or TV script. So, uh, and in in fact, in full disclosure, you are a, a, a member of our online improv for playwriting. That's group. true. That's and we, true. We meet once a month and we uh, improvise off of each other's uh, uh, premises and help each other uh, uh, jumpstart uh, uh, new scenes and, and new stuff. It's uh, also one of the reasons why David and I, the way we write is we dictate to a writer's assistant. Yeah. 
because a lot of times we're we're just improvising. Well, you know, it, it it allows us the freedom to not just sit there and go line by line where this line has to be perfect before you can get to the next line. Uh, a lot of times we'll just riff and then we'll just go back and, and clean it up. But it's it's all improv. Well, that's that's how the screenplay of uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice was written mostly over a weekend with uh, Paul Mazursky and Larry Tucker. Who they- come from second city they come from second city in fact Mm -hmm. paul mazursky uh did a movie called alex in wonderland an autobiographic movie and he hired viola spolin to play his mother (laughs) which pissed off his mother (laughs) you put me into a movie and you hire this person nobody's ever heard of to play me couldn't you get a fucking star to play me you're my son you're a movie oh i thought she was going to want to play herself no no she wanted a movie star to play her Anyway, eventually, you know, uh, Mazursky did indeed put up another movie, which his mother was in. Uh, it was called um, uh, Next Stop Greenwich Village. And uh, he had Shelley Berman playing his mother, but his mother had died by then. Uh, <laughs> yeah, given given the portrait of his mother, uh, you know, from, from not Shelley Berman. Uh, come on now. Uh, Shelley Winters. Shelley Winters. Yeah. Shelley Winters. Uh, wrong Shelley. Uh <laughs> But Shelley Winters playing, and given how how obnoxious the Shelley Winters character is, as opposed to you know dignified Viola Spolin, I sort of think that maybe uh, maybe Mazursky's mother might have uh, have cut him a break uh, posthumously. <laughs> but yeah, she wanted Shelley Long. Oh, I'm 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 sure, and Shelley Long would have been a marvelous uh, mama. <laughs> of course, Shelley Long is another Second City person. That's right. Uh, was. Uh, you know, I watch those early episodes of Cheers and everybody's good. She, as a technician, is astonishing. The, the clarity and the, the intelligence and the precision of that playing is a jaw-dropping. I don't think people knew how how, how brilliant a technician she was as a, as, as a performer. Oh, I always maintained anyone other than Shelley in that show goes 13 weeks. Uh, yeah. She was, yeah, she, no, I, she was, I, was that good. I've, it's I've, such I've, a difficult character to play because it would be so easy to hate her. Yeah. And and yet you didn't. She she walked that fine line. Well, lots and lots of people came out of Second City. Let's just do a little name dropping. As you mentioned, Robert Klein, Stephen Colbert, uh, Steve Carell, Alan Alda, Alan Arkin, Ed uh, Asner. um yeah, Barbara uh, Harris, Melinda Dillon, Melinda uh, Dillon. What five hundred other people uh, am well, I leaving uh, out? Uh, Megan Fay, uh, Amy Poehler, um, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, Andrea, Tina, Tina Fay. Yeah, yeah. Gilda Radner, uh, John Belushi. Yeah, Andrea Martin, Martin Short, uh, Dan Aykroyd, um, John Candy. Yeah. I mean, it's an astonishing group of people. They're and they're they're a team who were big in their day and have been forgotten now, but I thought were absolutely brilliant. And they played Broadway and had specials on TV. The team of John Monteith and Suzanne Rand, who were absolutely brilliant, and were like a comet that flared through the sky and have largely been forgotten. But they were so good that for a while, Leonard Bernstein went around town wearing a Monteith and Rand show jacket. He was such a fan of theirs. Wow, Stiller and Mira, two yeah. more. Yeah, I mean it's quite a quite a group, and the great pleasure. And Richard Kind, who was in one of my shows, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, uh, one of the great pleasures for me is uh, 
I ended up working with some of these people. Shelley Berman starred in my play, The Value of Names in Chicago, and um, actually reestablished his acting career doing that. Uh, he got rave reviews, and then he started being hired as an actor again. Um, so I got, I had the great pleasure of, uh, of working with a, a lot of these people, uh, uh, after doing the, after doing the book, I got to, um, play a scene once with Ed Asner. That was funny. <laughs> uh, there was a benefit in Arizona of a Jewish theater in Arizona. And the a woman who ran the place, uh, uh, said, uh, we, we're, we'd like to do a benefit. Will you come out and do this benefit? And he says, sure. If you bring sweet out. So I said, oh, okay. And so it was going to be, uh, and Barbara Harris was living there at the time. So Barbara and Ed and I were going to do this benefit for this Jewish, Arizona Jewish theater. And these people showed up and uh, uh, we were going to tell them the stories of the origin of Chicago theater. And uh, we ran a, a clip of Barbara doing a scene with, uh, with Alan Arkin and uh, Ed and I were doing a scene from one of my plays called Bluff and we were rehearsing in the afternoon. He says, stop. He says, I know what you're doing. I said, what am I doing? He says, you're feeding the monster. He says, get your laughs. He says, I can take care of myself. <laughs> so I wasn't. Okay. I got so, to do a scene with Andrea Martin. Yeah, this was 1979. And my partner and I were casting that Nichols and May pilot. We went to New York and we put her on tape and I played opposite her. Yeah. And it's nice. I've got this tape of, of me and Andrea Martin doing a scene together. She's a bloody genius. I saw her I saw her very young when she was very unsure. Now she's, you know, steely and professional. I've run into her since and she's, you know, she's 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 pretty tough now. But when I first met her, she was uh very insecure, um, very funny. I saw her once go on stage when she was so tired, she didn't know what way it was up, and she was still brilliant. It was like there was a gyroscope in her that kept her in true course. She asked me at one point, she says, you're a writer. I said, yeah. She says, well, my boyfriend, whoever the boyfriend at the time was, wants to be a writer. Will you go out to dinner with us, and will you tell my boyfriend what it's like to be a writer? So I, I went out and had had dinner with her, and I didn't see her for years and years. Then one day, I'm coming down the elevator of my building. I'm looking at my cell phone and I'm seeing news that a director friend of mine has just died. And I went, oh, she, and this woman's in the elevator says, what? And I said, oh, this director is a friend of mine just died. And she says, oh, he was a good director. She says, are you, are you in the theater? I said, yeah, I'm a playwright. And she says, well, I'm an actor. I said, oh, what's your name? She says, uh, Andrea Martin. I said, Andrea. Oh, wow. I hadn't recognized her because she didn't have, you know, her active face on. She was just this middle-aged woman in the elevator. I said, Andrea, I said, it's Jeff Sweet. And she says, well, why the fuck didn't you recognize me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's got a point. So the book is called Something Wonderful Right Away. This is the updated version where mm -hmm. we get the perspective of time. And it's available wherever you buy your books, which is like Amazon. Oh, 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 Amazon, Amazon, you know, glad that they're there, but support your local bookstore. I know. Yeah. But I'm saying how many bookstores you know, are, the, are there? But yes, the, the go, drama and support, go and support your local bookstore. A Amazon will have an e a Kindle version, an ebook version. And that's the only way to read it on an ebook if you want to read it on an ebook. But, uh, uh, you know, for all of the, those listening with whom I have a deep and sincere and intimate relationship, 
you you five know who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> please, please buy a, a real book in a real bookstore. We, we, we need to keep these places alive. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. And our thanks to Jeffrey Sweet. Again, his book is Something Wonderful Right Away. This is the updated version, and it is available wherever you get books. Uh, Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. Come back next week for more excitement here on Hollywood and Levine. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hollywood and Levine.